Let's see what you hear. Um, just really excited about getting into this this uh, next section um, in in the book of Mark. So before we get started, I want us to have a, a quick prayer, and then we're just going to move right into um, our lesson for today. So let's pray. Father, we come before you this day. Father, we thank you that you are a great and powerful and awesome God. Father, we thank you that you have come here to this earth. We thank you, Father, that you have delivered us, that you have saved us, and that, Father, you will, you will send your Son once again to come back. And, Father, we anticipate that day. And, Father, this is a day that we, as your people, we come together, we, we learn more about you, we meditate on you, we reflect on our own lives, and we come in all-out worship and praise and thanksgiving and confession and repentance. We bring all of this before you this morning, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Go ahead and turn over to Mark chapter 1. Get used to it, because we're going to say Mark 1. <laughs> For a little bit longer. I want to give you a quick recap because Mark has been, um, he tells us right, in, right from the very start. I mean, this very first verse is so key. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he quotes from Isaiah and he quotes from Malachi to show that the one who was supposed to come, the one who was to prepare the highway, right, that the Messiah was to come down, that God would finally come down and to be with his people. It's finally here. And, and we see that this preparation has been happening, and we see that uh, John the baptizer is the one that the prophets had spoke about hundreds of years before, and he also um, mimics a, a uh, Hebrew narrative character. Who was it? What? Yeah, Elijah. Remember? He wore the really cool threads, right? I mean, he looked like him. He sounded like him. He, he, he was the exact fulfillment of, of what we find. And so Mark has drawn this picture of the Exodus. And, and we're going to continue to see this. Israel is being called back into the wilderness again. And they're called out into the wilderness to find deliverance. So the people, they once again are going to pass through the waters, right? John's baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins. And they pass through the waters as Israel had done before. So they're just waiting. They're waiting. So verse 9, listen to the way he opens up. He says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Finally, we see the one who came on the heavenly highway, and it's Jesus. And where did he come from? Give you a hint. Nazareth. Wait a second. I thought he was from heaven. Isn't that what we read in Isaiah? But here he says he's, he's come from Nazareth. Now, Mark doesn't specify a whole lot about anything except he's come from Nazareth out into the wilderness. One thing we know about Nazareth is that it is a place uh, where, of Jesus' hometown. 
Didn't start out there when he was born, but that's where he ended up as a very, very small um, either baby or toddler, probably toddler at that particular town. Now, here's what we know about Nazareth. Not a lot. It's just a little hick town, okay? So you think in your mind of, you know, we got people from all over the place. I grew up in Alabama, so there's a lot of hick towns. Some people would refer to my hometown as a hick town. We would refer to the other towns in the county as hick towns. Brilliant Alabama. And I know there's good people there, but listen, they totally misnamed that town. Uh, Bear Creek, uh, Hackleburg, Ewan, all of these are little hick towns. And if someone would have told us that the Messiah to save the world has come from one of those places, and if they would have said it came from Hamilton, you would have been like, that's crazy. So imagine, if you will, you know, whatever town that is, let's imagine that we have heard that the Messiah has come from Yeehaw Junction. And, and it's kind of comparable to Nazareth in a, in a lot of ways because there was a main road. It was, a, it was a, like, like an interstate, as we might think of. And it's just a little, little thing out there. And if we said the Messiah, the Messiah has come from Yeehaw Junction, we'd be like, you're crazy. Now, Mark doesn't tell us, um, doesn't, you know, give us that many details because we said that's the way Mark is. But the Gospel of John tells us some folks struggled with this. Can anything good come from Nazareth, right? So where would you think that the coming king would, would come from? Jerusalem, right? At least from some respectable place uh, where kings came from. But we just, this just seems kind of odd. So I want to give you a little bit extra from Matthew's birth account just because uh, not necessarily it's, it's going to add to our story. I just want you to see the awesomeness of God's word. I want you to see the awesomeness of what is spoken in the Hebrew text and, and how it's all being fulfilled. Uh, it's, it's the word Nazareth, okay? After he is born, uh, in Matthew 2 verse 23 says, and he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth. So that what was spoken by who? The prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Does anyone remember the name Nazareth, the city of Nazareth in, in the Hebrew scriptures? It's not there. The name Nazareth is not there. In fact, many believe that the city or the little town, not city, the little town of Nazareth that it was, it was, they don't believe it came into existence until probably the intertestament period, which is between what we call the Old and New Testament. So what's Matthew doing? Is he lying? Is Matthew uh, showing a contradiction in Scripture? All right, well, let me show you. It's, it's Isaiah 11, verse 1 and 2. And he says what? Somebody read it for us.
All right, anybody see it? Jesus is going to come from Nazareth. Wait, what? Okay, we see prophecy. This is about Jesus and his coming. It's about Israel and Jesus. And, but here's, here's, this is why, it's, <laughs> why we miss some things. Because those who understood Hebrew and read Hebrew, they got it. Because this word branch and a branch from his roots shall he bear. And that word branch means it, it, it is pronounced nazir. It, it comes from Nazareth. This is where the names Nazareth and Nazarene come from, is this Hebrew word. Here's what I want you to see, okay? Even the sounds of the Hebrew scriptures are fulfilled in Jesus. Even the very sounds. Folks, that's just fascinating. We can't, we can't stay on that. We go back to verse 9. He says, so in these days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So Jesus has now made this trip from Nazareth down into the wilderness. And he's come to be what? Baptized. By what baptism? John's baptism. What is John's baptism? What's that? Repentance and forgiveness of sins. Isn't that what it said? Back in verse 4? And, and didn't Jesus or John say, Hey, look, when, when he comes... He said, he's going to come down the heavenly highway. I'm preparing this heavenly highway. It says, when he comes, he is mightier than I. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And then he even says that he brings a greater baptism. Remember that in verse 8? He's going to bring baptism of the Holy Spirit. Folks, this is about as anticlimactic as it gets. When we study that off of what we studied last week out of Isaiah chapter 40, where Yahweh is going to come down, down the heavenly highway, the messenger is going to be there, John the Baptist is there, we see that Jesus is coming and all of this, and, and John is saying he's greater, he's mightier, I mean, we've got these things in our minds, and then he comes, and, and, and John says he's going to bring a greater baptism, baptism of the Holy Spirit, and he comes to John and he says, I want to be baptized by you. And Mark doesn't tell us the struggle that John the Baptist had, but John had a real struggle with it. John said exactly what I'd have said, uh, shouldn't I be baptized by you? Okay, let's keep going. It, because here's what I want you to see, that Mark, he, he doesn't get tied down on a lot of the details because what he really wants us to see are, are what occurs at this baptism. So somebody read for us verses... 10 and 11. 10 and 11. Okay. When we peel back the layers of what, we've, what was just read here with Jesus' baptism... What we find is an inauguration of God's kingdom in the Hebrew scriptures. There are three things, three things, these are huge, 
One of those is, um, is that the, uh, um, <laughs> uh, the heavens, yeah, uh, the heavens, and, and I'll just put this, the sky, okay? So when he's talking about the heavens, he's not talking about what our American minds think of heaven. So the sky are ripped open or torn open, right? And then the other thing is what? The spirit. The spirit descends. And what's the third thing? Yeah, there's a heavenly voice. And what does the voice say? This is my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased. So when we, when we look at these, we're going to see something huge. Let's just start with the sky. Okay, One, the thing that he says here is totally different than what we find in Matthew and Luke. Because in Matthew and Luke, uh, it says the heavens were opened. Mark says it is torn open. It, that is a forceful, a violent language uh, that he is, he's using here. Uh, the question is, you know, why? What is, what is Mark really trying to say? Well, that takes us to Isaiah chapter 64. So go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 64. And I'm going to set this up um, as, as you come, as we get to it. So this is a section of Scripture, really Isaiah 55 through, through uh, 66. That's one big section. And right in the middle of this, in uh, verses 60 through 62, it is the announcement of the kingdom. The, it is the announcement of, I can't spell, y'all need that anyway. Uh, it is the announcement of the kingdom, the good news, all right, which is what we've been talking about. So here is this announcement. Now, on both sides of it, uh, uh, what we find are these prayers of repentance, okay? So this is how this thing works out. This is these prayers of repentance, and chapter 63 through 65, we find these, these prayers um, of repentance. And, and here in the midst of all of this, we find chapter 64. Somebody read for us the first two verses. Okay, so he says, oh, that you would what? Rend, rip, tear the heavens, and do what? Come down. Folks, this is, this is the language that, that he's been talking about. He's talking about here um, of the arrival of, uh, of the presence of God, right? He is announcing um, this, this presence that God is coming into the world. And we, we, we talked about that last week from Isaiah chapter 40. But, but I'm wanting you to see off of this, these prayers of repentance, we find this arrival. Okay? And it's the same language that Mark uses here. 
and it's, it is torn apart. Now, there's one other time that Mark uses this Greek word for torn apart. Does anyone want to guess where it is mentioned? Go ahead, Cheryl. What did you say? Yes, yes, very good. It, it's, it's the curtain of the temple that goes into what? The Holy of Holies, the mercy seat, the presence of God. It's been, it's been ripped. And both of these have to do with God's presence. One is that the heavens, the skies are ripped open and God is finally coming. The other one is the temple, the curtain of the temple has been ripped so we can come into the presence of God. There's no longer this barrier that is there. It has been ripped. All right? So both of these events show that Jesus is the Son of God. That is very important to Mark. He also mentions another thing, and that is the Spirit. The Spirit descends. Now, we already read Isaiah 11 in verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And goes on and talks about the wisdom and the understanding and all of this kind of stuff. But I want us to go pull back to Isaiah 42. Because once again, this is where Mark is pulling from. It's from this section. So you go to Isaiah chapter 42. If you remember, we looked at chapter 40 last week. Uh, so this section in verses um, um, 40 through 48, this is about um, um, this deliverance or, or this good news, um, this hope, if you will, that's coming after exile. Remember that? They're wondering, you know, what, what is going to happen? You know, the promises of God. God's presence is no longer here. The ark is lost. The, the temple is destroyed. And they're waiting. And so he said back in chapter 40, remember this, he says, listen, your sins are forgiven. The, the time of the consequences of your sins has come. And now you are to go back home. You are to go back to your lands. And, and you are to await the coming of the kingdom of God. And so that's, that's what, this is what this, this thing is about. So the people are to return, and so chapter 42 speaks of the one who is coming. Listen to the description in verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. That should sound familiar. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And so in Mark chapter 1, in verse 10, when he talks about the Spirit coming and descending on Jesus, the Greek there, it actually intensifies. It, it intensifies this union. And what he's saying is that the Spirit has descended into Jesus. So the Spirit now is fully, is fully in Christ and has equipped Jesus for the ministry. And you're going to see next week how his ministry is going to begin. And, but this is important as to what's happening here. And it is also a fulfillment of prophecy of the one who is coming. It is the spirit that is descended. So now we go to chapter 61. Go to chapter 61. Now this goes with our... Um, this goes with... Uh, the poems, right? 
So this is one of the, the, uh, the poems that we find here. And the spirit empowered servant king is being announced. So chapter 61, verse 1 says, The spirit of the Lord, the spirit of Yahweh God is upon me. You hear this? Because Yahweh has anointed me. To do what? No, look at it. Bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prisons to those who are bound. So what we find here is the spirit anointing. All right? And by anointing, he's bringing forth this good news. Right? The kingdom of God. All right, so here's my question. We go back to Mark, why a dove? You ever thought about that? Why a dove? And notice what it says. It says he descended like a dove. Not that the spirit is a dove. He says it's like a dove. It's kind of an interesting phraseology. And guess what? All the gospels use the same language. Um, where is the first time that we learn about the Holy Spirit in Scripture? Yeah, very first, first page of the Bible, Genesis 1-1. And what is the Spirit doing? Hovering over the waters. Hovering over the chaos and the darkness of the waters. Now, it's this word hovering I want you to see. The Spirit of God was hovering. That word, that Hebrew word is only used one other time in Scripture. And it is in Deuteronomy 32 that we just read as a church. And you probably didn't pick up on it, and I wouldn't expect you to, but it says he watches over his nest like an eagle and hovers over its young. What is happening in Mark chapter 1? The Spirit of God is like a bird that is hovering over the waters. What is the Spirit doing in creation? What does the Spirit do? Go ahead, Jerry, say it. Hovers, but what is the Spirit going to do in creation? Brings life, right? Brings life, creation. Now, there's, there's of course, one big difference uh, in what we find with, um, with what Mark says and what's happening in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. One is the creation of the world. This one is about what? New creation. You know, we talk about ourselves. You know, we are new creations in Christ. What does that mean? He's telling us what it means. It's someone who has the Spirit of God that is creating this life, that empowers the individual to, to live as God. And so there is this heavenly announcement that's the other thing. What is the heavenly announcement? This is my what? Beloved son, with, with you I am well pleased. Now that's similar to what we just read in Isaiah 42, right? This is the one that's been chosen in whom my soul delights. Uh, and it, and, and, but this one comes from a place outside of Isaiah, believe it or not. It comes from the book of Psalms. Go to Psalm chapter 2. You've got to see this. 
Anytime we get to go to the Psalms, it's a good day. So we go to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 is um, it's a royal psalm. It, it's, it's, it's one of my favorites. I just love this. And it's very possible that the kings of Israel, this psalm would have been recited um, at the installation of a new king. And if you look at it, it breaks down. Those first three verses are about the nations, how they rage, they are, um, they are scheming. Uh, and so verses 4 through 6, there is a heavenly vision. Huh, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? And it ends with this oracle in verse 6. He says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Okay, get that. He is setting his king. And then in verses 7 through 9, we find that Yahweh speaks, and then there's these warnings and uh, promises that are found in the last three verses. But I want to go back to verse 7. And he says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. Does that sound familiar? It should. It should sound very familiar to Mark. So this is where he pulls from. And if you go up to verse 2, uh, the very last verse, or the last stanza there, says, against the Lord, against Yahweh, and against his what? His anointed. Now, does anyone have another word other than anointed? Does anybody have a marginal reading for Anointed. It is where we get, it is the Hebrew of Messiah. He is the chosen one. Does anyone want to guess the Greek equivalent to anointed? I'll give you a hint. The Greek word is Christos. Christ. How does Mark begin? The beginning of the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ, Jesus anointed, Jesus Messiah, Jesus the chosen one. He is the king that has been chosen. This is who he is. You see what Mark is, this enthronement, really not the enthronement as much as his coronation is happening right here. And Psalm chapter 2 is such an important um, it's an important chapter in the, in the New Testament. The New Testament used it right, uh, quite a bit. In fact, 10 times it quotes from verse 7 that we just quoted, and it's to show that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the king, the chosen one of God. Um, and and, and uh, eight other times it uses the other passages uh, there in, in uh, the book of Psalm chapter 2. So Jesus has been chosen to rule, to be the king. Now, when we keep going, we're going to get to the, toward the end, and we're going to see that, that he is being called the king of the Jews. Is it being used in a positive light or a negative light? A very negative light. One is by, you know, he's put on trial by the Romans, says, okay, well, here's the king of the Jews. The other one are the Jews, and they're mocking Jesus and referring to him as the king of the Jews. And it's like, why? I mean, I mean, here we are, the very first chapter of Mark. Why, 
here's his baptism. What's going on? They did not see it. And when I say they didn't see it, that didn't mean they didn't get it. That means they, they didn't see what Jesus saw. Because at the baptism, Mark 1.11, he says, And the voice came from heaven, and he says, and he speaks in second person, You are my beloved son. He's speaking to Jesus. Jesus, you are. But later on, in Mark 9 and verse 7, at the transfiguration of Jesus, he's going to once again say, You're my beloved son. But actually what he says here is, This is my beloved son. This, third person. He's speaking to Peter, James, and John. And he says, Look, you see him? This is my beloved son. At the baptism, he's speaking directly to Jesus. They didn't see it. They, they, they weren't given this. And you're going to say, and you're going to see this, and, and I know in, probably your initial thought is, why? Why? I mean, isn't this why he came? And you're going, your mind is just going to be blown before we get out of chapter 1 because Jesus is, I mean, all through his ministry, he's doing this. Shh. That's what he's doing. All right, there's more. There is a group that Yahweh referred to as his sons. What group did he call his children? Ah, Israel. You probably may remember it in Exodus chapter 4 and other places as well. And what we see here, this is so important, Israel is being reduced to one man. This is a prophecy of the one coming. And he says, you are my servant, Israel. You are my servant, Israel. Why is that important, that Jesus becomes Israel? That Jesus represents Israel? More than that. What's that? Okay, hold on. What did you say? I'm sorry. He's a Nazarene. What did you say back there? Okay, Gentiles into the kingdom. It goes deeper than that. Okay, we've been reading, right, as a church. How did Israel do? They failed. We read, we just finished up Deuteronomy, folks. Deuteronomy is written to the second generation, the ones who's getting ready to go into the land. There is all of this this Garden of Eden language that is there. And he tells them, look, you stand before the tree of good and evil once again, and you're going to make a choice. And we're going, we find out very quickly, they fail. In fact, before we get out of Deuteronomy, it's just, it's almost comical. It is to me, because, you know, it's going through all of this, and then, you know, Moses says, but you're going to fail. It's, you're going to fail. So this was very important because the future of humanity it rests on the shoulders of Jesus. Israel was chosen to bring the light of God, to, to show who God is to the nations. And they failed. So Jesus is identifying with them. Jesus is the servant king who's going to lead Israel and the nations on another exodus. And get this, I want to tell you something. The people were waiting for another exodus. Did you know this? And you read it, you may not have understood it quite. You're, all right, you remember, you'll remember this part. You remember the guy with the talking donkey? 
Yeah, it's like, yeah, I don't remember anything else, but I remember the talking donkey. Okay, all that happened because Israel is so big in size, and King Balak is scared to death. And he calls this, this prophet, and he is not a prophet of God, and he calls him to curse God's people. Does Balaam curse God's people? <laughs> he can't. All he can do is bless them. And when you read these oracles, these prophecies that he gives of these blessings, we find something very fascinating. And in, in, the, in the second one, he says, God brings them, that's plural, Israel, out of Egypt. But when he comes to the third oracle, he says the same thing, but one small but huge change. He says he brings him, singular, out of Egypt. What this prophecy is telling us is there will be another exodus in the future. That's what he's telling us. So the language of these revelations, it points to Jesus as the coming Messiah. If you were to read all of these prophecies, we don't, we're not even going to cover these other things in here. It's, it's, they're speaking towards Jesus. So by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, okay, by the heavenly voice, Jesus not only can speak on, on, on behalf of or for God, he speaks as God. Do you see this? This is so important for us to get. We are not meant to just run through this without having a, a better understanding. All right, let's go back to Mark 1. Somebody read verses 12 through 13. Mark 1. Go ahead, somebody. Okay, I cannot stress to you enough how the second exodus is being played out. One thing, Jesus has come, and he is passing through the waters, just as Israel had passed through the Red Sea. When you take Matthew's account, and I'm just going to bring this in just for you to see it even more. Uh, we know that after Jesus was born, he was forced into where? Remember as a baby? He's forced into Egypt. Wasn't Israel forced into Egypt? Why were they forced there? There was a famine, right? So, so we see that there is a famine. Now, Herod, he, he, the reason he's forced there is because he's heard from the Magi that Jesus is the Son of God, or, or that Jesus is uh, the King of the Jews, and he's got to do something to expel them. So what does he do? Anybody remember? Yes. He killed the Hebrew babies. Does that sound familiar to anything in Israel's history? How about by Pharaoh? Pharaoh is wanting all the male children to die, right? So finally, um, Pharaoh dies, 
And now we see that, that the family of Jesus, Jesus himself, leaves Egypt and he comes into the promised land. Back to the place of his fathers. Did this happen with Israel? Did they leave Egypt to come into the promised land? Yes. And, and so what we also find is uh, here in Mark is that the presence of God leads Jesus. And that, what, what is it that's leading Jesus? The Spirit. What about Israel? What led Israel? He is led, they're led by this cloud, right? I think I may have. Uh, okay, yeah. Um, an angel of the Lord appeared. Uh, no, that's not it. I think I've, I think I got to go to the next one. Yeah. So the pillar of cloud, right? Uh, by day and by night. This is what leads them. God's presence is leading them. So in retelling this narrative, Mark uses a word that is not found in any of the other Gospels. Does anyone know what he says here that's different in verse 12? What does the Spirit do? He drove him. Drove him. The, the others uh, are not as forceful. This is forceful. He's driven. And it, it's very similar to the scapegoat. You know, they put the sins of Israel on this goat, and then it would be driven into the wilderness. But, but that's, that's really not so much here. So let me ask you this. Why is the Spirit driving Jesus into the wilderness? For what purpose? To be tempted. Or we might put here, tested. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 8. And we've read this. And, and maybe you'll remember it, but Deuteronomy chapter 8, uh, we're going to find out a little bit more about, about uh, Israel being taken into the wilderness. Now, a lot of times we think, okay, so God has delivered Israel, and he's going to take them on the easiest path, right, in order to get to, get to folks, this is not the fastest route. Here is, there, these are the main routes in that day and time. See how they're all going? And here, this is the path they go. And so Deuteronomy 8 and verse 2 tells us something. Notice, he says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, and what? Testing you. Testing you. Look at verse 16. Who fled... You who fed you in the wilderness of the man of your fathers did not know that he might humble you and what? Test you. Now the question is, why? Why would God take these people who have been oppressed for all of these years and finally deliver them and lead them on this long route in order to humble them and test them? Go to chapter 13 of Deuteronomy. And listen, listen to what he says in verse 3. He says, you shall listen to the words of the prophet or that dreamer of dreams. He says, for, listen to this, for Yahweh your God is testing you. Now here's why. 
to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And, and that Hebrew word for testing, it means to put to the test in order to ascertain the nature of something, including imperfections, faults, or other qualities. Why would Jesus be tempted, tested in the wilderness? What would be the purpose What? Do what? Yes, for our sake, but also something else. If the testing is to know what is the nature of something, what do we learn from Jesus? He's God. He's God. That's what we're supposed to see. And so he says, you'll remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you. How long? 40 years in the wilderness. How long was Jesus in the wilderness to be tested? 40 days. You see all these coincidences? These are not coincidences. These are not coincidences. We are supposed to see, we are supposed to see the Exodus. So Moses is on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. And so Elijah, um, he... Let me say, Moses goes to the mountain, 40 days, 40 nights. Elijah goes to, he is sent into the wilderness to Sinai, 40 days and 40 nights. And all of these are seen as a way of testing. It's testing in the wilderness. What are they testing? They're testing their trust and faith in God. So Israel, let's see. So Israel displays the nature of Adam. Am I right? Jesus, who is Israel, we see through his testing that he is God, but we also know that he is human. And by him being God and human, he is not the old Adam. He becomes the new Adam. He's our only hope. Jesus becomes the new Adam. He does what Israel failed to do. He does what Adam failed to do. He was sinless. Romans Romans chapter 5, 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, that's Adam, so one act of righteousness led to justification and life for all men, that's Jesus. So the wilderness proves that Jesus can now sympathize with our weaknesses. He was tempted in all points just as we are, yet without sin. We don't have a God who's out in space somewhere and does not know how to understand us. So Mark includes another word or phrase that is not found in the other Gospels. Does anyone else want to find it there in the, in the last part of that reading? Jesus is in the wilderness. What? With what? Okay, before angels. Wild animals. 
Does that sound odd? None of the other gospel accounts mention this. And fortunately, Mark doesn't tell us. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. Um, and so there's a couple of ideas. One is that Jesus is the new Adam, and therefore he is seen as this, the new covenant. Um, uh, this new covenant when the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, the creeping things of the ground, and there's going to be this peacefulness in the animal kingdom just as it was. Adam had, he had named all the animals. There was peace in the Garden of Eden before the fall, and that Jesus now is represented out in the wilderness, and he is, he is representing this new covenant of peace. He's with the wild animals. Other people say no. I think this has to do with uh, wild animals has the idea of of fear and terror, right? These are dangers. And so Mark, is. Uh, many believe that he wrote this at the end of 60s AD. Nero, a few years back, had already started persecuting the Christians. And one of the things that he did to these Christians is he, he, he killed them with wild animals. In fact, one of the things that Nero did is he had the, uh, the skins of animals and sewn into the skin, the human skin of these Christians, and then they would release these, these wild dogs and it would just tear them to pieces. Mark doesn't tell us either way. But here is what Mark tells us. Satan now has to contend with a new Adam. And he is filled with the Holy Spirit of God. He has been equipped like none other before. And he is ministered to by the angels. And so that's what he tells us. Yes. So I think it's the first time Satan attacked Jesus. Well, I, you know, just being human, there's always temptations and Jesus began his ministry when he was 30 so I got to think there's there's the human but there was this this kind of like showdown you you're going to face Satan head on yes listen Jesus, Jesus is the new Adam. So we follow him through the waters. We too are filled with the Spirit of God. And we too are going to be taken into the wilderness for our own testing. But what Jesus shows us is that we can overcome. Because we now are equipped with the Spirit of God who dwells in us. And I also believe the angels minister to us somehow. I don't have all the answers to that. But I do believe the story that's been given and that, that Israel's story is Jesus' story and Jesus' story is our story. The difference is that we now come as a new Adam. But we can only be the new Adam because of Jesus. Because that he is the anointed, the chosen the king, who's bringing forth the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is breaking into the world at this point. This is huge. 
And it's huge for us because guess what? The kingdom of God has broken in. Yes. Well, as a preacher, I feel like I'm surrounded by wild animals all the time. Uh, you know, those passages are very fascinating of the new heavens and the new earth. Um, and it takes us right back to Eden. I mean, we, we haven't we seen this as we've gone through our readings, through, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We're going to see it in, in a little bit into Joshua as well. This just, it just keeps flowing back. And guess what the last two chapters in the Bible and Revelation is all about? It's a return to Eden. You know, um, and the only way to get there is to have the nature of the new Adam, not the old Adam. This is why Jesus is our king. This is why we submit to Jesus. And he came not only to rescue the Jews, he came to rescue the nations. What the Jews were supposed to do, and they failed. Jesus has come to bring the kingdom. All right? Well, I know people are gathering up outside, so... If you have any other questions, feel free to come ask me. I know I fly through this. This was supposed to be two lessons originally, and I put it into to one, so sorry. All right, you're dismissed.